Welcome to the Columbia Church Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We're so excited to share this weekend's message with you from Dr. Jim Balkum, our senior pastor. We hope it encourages you, inspires you, and helps you grow in your faith as a whole life disciple. Now, enjoy the message. Man, that little bumper just preached my whole sermon. So uh, have a great fourth. It's great to see you. It feels like a a late pandemic day today. It must be true that uh, more people are traveling or roading, whatever they're doing, than at any time in a weekend like this in history. And I can tell you, coming home from the South, from the beach, just the steady stream of traffic all the way on Friday was unmitigated. It was just unbelievable. I was glad I was headed the other way, and I'm glad to be back with you, and it was good to be away for a couple of weeks. I've done a lot of reading, a lot of writing. It's been a great time of reflection for me, and spent a little time in the sun, too. I want to thank Chris Clifford for so ably standing in for me. He's a multi-talented guy. In fact, he was the one doing... uh, he was the one doing the needlepoint right there. In the, no, not really. He, that, that, that wasn't him. But he is a great communicator and fantastic friend and a good guy. And if I ever I can't preach on a Sunday, now I know, having listened to his sermon last week, he can just step up here without any preparation because he knows exactly what I'm going to say. So that's really awesome. Listen, I, I wonder if you are like me and you ever take it a step too far. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, you know, you... you, you you're a perfectionist, or, or you, you want to get it exactly right, or you, you have some image in your mind that you want to create, and you just go one step too far. Now, in terms of people traveling, there are actually a lot of stories now about people stepping backward one step too far. Since the age of selfies, the number of fall accidents on vacation has increased dramatically. So someone is taking a selfie at the Grand Canyon or somewhere like that, and they wind up in the bottom of whatever they are photographing. They take one step too far. But listen, I got to tell you, I am famous for taking it one step too far. Uh, some of you men, maybe a few women too, but some of you men, can you, can, you, uh, can you think with me about this? Is there ever a time you turned the screw one time too many? How many of you have done this before? Have you done that? Now, one of two things happens. Either you break the screw off, which is a tremendous problem. I mean, this is, this is the worst that can possibly happen because you know you are going to spend the rest of the day figuring out how to get that screw out. You're going to drill it out or whatever you have to do. So you turned it one time too far. Or, or, and this is what happens to me more often, you either bend what you're screwing down or you strip the screw hole that you're screwing into. And so that one time too far, you know, you had it right. It was perfect, but you thought tight is always best. I don't want to have to come back and fix this later. One time too many. How many of you have ever been cooking something? So you've made a recipe and there's some spice in the recipe you really like. Let's say it could be salt. It could be garlic. Have you ever done this? In my case, it's usually something hot. It's heat. Like you're making the chili and in my view, it can't get too hot. Well, it can. It is possible for something to be so hot you can no longer taste it. So you added an ingredient or you just put a little too much of one ingredient and and you ruin the whole recipe. You either threw it out, started over, or you served it worse. And your first bite, you knew one step too many. If you've done that, let me know. Okay, you've done this. I mean, you have done all. I could talk about this again and again. There is a right moment to stop, you know? And I, I mean, I'm sure you're going to tell me, you know, Jim, this is true. I mean, sometimes it's 1.2 many in the sermon, right? My dad always, who's a pastor, used to listen to pastors and he would say, although he's just like every other pastor, he wouldn't follow his own advice, but he would say he missed a great opportunity to conclude right there. So sometimes you can just go one step too far. And if you do, you ruin the whole thing. Now, this is what happens to us so often. We're at a right moment to to pause. We're at a right place to stop thinking. We overthink, we overcalculate, we overdo, and 
when we don't stop at the right point, we can blow the whole thing. And the story we'll study today is a story where precisely that happens. And it happens within the context of self-talk. I learned a lot listening to Chris teach about this. I have loved preparing for this. Some of what I've read I'll be sharing with you in the days to come. And I will tell you that what we're going to study today, I think, takes this out of the realm of just some sort of self-help idea, which I'll talk about in a moment. But we are going to look at self-talk, and that is uh, a term that we hear often in the realm of self t- uh, self-help or, or in psychology or sociology. So self-talk is vocal or silent speech directed at oneself. Now, I, I did have someone after my introductory sermon send me an article that uh, involved a scientific study that said essentially not all people talk to themselves. Some people do not. I, I, it wasn't a large percentage. It was a small percentage of people. But apparently there are a group of people who do not have an internal monologue. They do not have an internal conversation, if you will. And maybe you find yourself in that category. So let me just say I'm using this term generally because all of us are sending messages to ourselves constantly. There are tapes that are running in our heads. There's a hard drive that is being accessed. There's an SSD, by modern language, that's being accessed constantly in our minds. And it's full of stuff that people have put there. So I've been saying that by default, we are who significant others tell us that we are. Now, this is sometimes a wonderful thing. I'm blessed because early in my life, I received a lot of positive messages about who I was and who I could be. I received a lot of positive messages about who God is and God's love for me. I received a lot of positive messages. I've been hearing from a lot of people who've told me precisely the opposite. That I grew up hearing a lot of negative messages about who I am and about what I could not be. And so their self-talk is a constant rehearsing of these scripts that have been given them about themselves, about others, about their relationships, about God, about the world around them. So by default, we are who significant others tell us that we are. But by choice, we are who we tell ourselves that we are. So there will never be a more significant voice in determining who you are than your own voice. Now, I, I can argue here that it's God's voice or, or the voice of Jesus Christ, sure. But it's our messages to ourselves about what God intends for us in creation, about, about Christ's love for us, about his redemptive plan for us. It's those messages we tell ourselves that make possible a step far beyond what others tell us that we are. Now, that can go a step too far. I think we've all seen people, and here's the problem with the whole self-talk genre, the whole treatment of just uh, negating all negative self-talk and having only positive self-talk. There are certainly people around us who read their own press way too much. Their self-talk is very positive, and that would be a good thing, but it's positive even when there's danger for them and others around them. Nonetheless, I would say that most of the messages we give to ourselves are far too negative, are are a little dangerous for us and for others around us because they limit us or because they cause us to behave in in cruel ways or or in different ways than we want to. So so I want to think about how we edit our self-talk, and the way we edit our self-talk is with self-talk. I'm going to be talking about this in weeks to come, but recent research has shown as it looks at the brain functioning as we move through the world, that 90% of what we do is dictated by our subconscious. That is to say that we aren't thinking it through, we aren't making calculated decisions, we're not deciding as we think we are, the decisions being made for us, if you will, by our subconscious minds. And so what has to be done for us to modify our being is for us to edit that subconscious. And the way we get at it is through the conscious. It's through thinking things through carefully. It is through getting deeper in by using self-talk. So that's the discipleship, and I do think this is a whole life discipleship process 
that I'm talking about in this series. Now, what made me curious about this was finding soliloquy in the Bible. It's not that I didn't know it was there. It's just that I'd never really noticed it. So I was reading through the teachings of Jesus, and I got to some of his parables. And in a couple of those parables, which I'll deal with in the next few weeks, not all of them, but a few, I started to notice how often Jesus mentioned somebody speaking to themselves. And then I noticed the number of times that Jesus overheard others who were around him who were talking to themselves in his presence. Actually, more times than I realized. And I became curious about this soliloquy in Scripture. I then remembered that God spoke to himself in creation, which is where I started this series, and started thinking about some of the Psalms, only a few of which we're dealing with in this series, where the psalmist seems to address himself. And then I got back to the New Testament, which is where we'll go today, and started really noticing the amount of this, soliloquy. Soliloquy is the act of speaking to one's self. A lot of people laughed when I asked a couple of weeks ago, do you ever talk to yourself? And a lot of people contacted me afterwards and say, not only do I do it in my mind, but I do it constantly out loud, which they usually followed by saying, and that drives, fill in the blank, my friends, my husband, my wife, whatever, crazy, but I can't think unless I speak out loud. Most of us do this internally, though. So it's the act of speaking to oneself, either unspoken reflections or spoken reflections of some character, in this case, you. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned this, that there are a lot of famous soliloquies in a lot of dramas and a lot of writing. This is one of the most famous in Act 3, Scene 1 of Hamlet. To be or not to be, what? That is the question. So Hamlet's not speaking this out loud, although he is in the play, right? He's thinking this, and we overhear his thoughts because he says it. Now, just to review, because I haven't been here for a couple of weeks, all of this reading in Scripture and elsewhere has caused me to have some general reflections or observations about self-talk. So I'm just going to run through these quickly because I dealt with them a few weeks ago. First of all, self-talk is never just monologue. It's never just monologue. It is always a conversation with ourselves. There's always a back and forth. There's always a movement. Secondly, self-talk reveals our spiritual condition, and this may be the biggest revelation that I've had as I've studied for this series. It's caused me to write more of my self-talk in my journals, though I could argue that all of my journaling is some sort of self-talk. It's caused me to monitor what I'm thinking and what I'm feeling a little more, and that's never a bad thing, to become aware of what I'm being told by my subconscious, to be aware of the conversation that's happening inside of me all the time. And it has revealed a lot to me, some positive and quite a bit negative, about my spiritual journey and where I stand right now. Third, self-talk does not remain internal. It comes out somewhere. It comes out somehow. It may come out in something that we speak in an unguarded moment. It is more likely to emerge in our demeanor or our behavior. But I would suggest to you that if you watch carefully, you can tell what somebody else is telling themselves. Think about this and start watching and monitoring. You can almost feel it. You can almost sense it. You can almost hear the conversation as though you were watching a drama. So to think that self-talk has no ramifications or implications for what we do, I think is a complete misnomer. And finally, self-talk is intensely revealing and it is extremely powerful. Now, one of the reasons, and this is what we're going to start to hit today, One of the reasons that self-talk is never just monologue is that there is always at least one person who is hearing what we are saying to ourselves other than ourselves, and this is a Sunday school answer. It's really easy, so that one person would be. This is a Sunday school answer, so it's really easy. That one person would be. 
That would be God. I'll accept Jesus there. That's the Sunday school answer, right? Jesus. I'll accept that. So, so it, is, it is always true that God is overhearing what we believe we are saying to ourselves. And in these stories in the New Testament, that's going to come forward again and again. And that has been an interesting revelation for me. So when I'm talking to myself about something and it suddenly occurs to me, I'm also speaking to God. We could say that self-talk is a form of prayer. It is a way of our revealing ourselves to God because our internal worlds are fully and completely known to God. He knows everything about us. Proverbs chapter 23, 7a, though, as I said three weeks ago, this is slightly out of context. Nonetheless, I think it's accurate and true. For as a man thinketh in his heart, so he is. As you think, so you are. Thought determines what we do. Not just conscious thought, but subconscious thought. Now let's get to the story because I really am eager to get to this one. I'm going to deal with one of the parables of Jesus today. Uh, Next week, I'm going to deal with an actual interaction between Jesus and others around him that involves self-talk. And then I'm going to return to a couple of parables. And as I do, I'm going to do something that I think you're unlikely to read in a self-help book. Now, let me tell you, I don't think you need to ignore self-help books. I, I don't think that at all. All truth is God's truth. And there's some really good stuff out there. One book I'm going to share with you next week that I've been reading. It's been really helpful. It's just that sometimes it's inadequate to fully address the issue to me. And the Bible, unsurprisingly, is completely adequate to address this issue. And one of the things that I think we don't see in the self-help genre on self-talk is much discussion about negative thinking we do that is not so much about what we are or are not capable of. So in the self-help genre, it's more like this. You change I can't to I can. You change I'm not able to I am able. You change I'm not adequate to I, I am adequate. You change whatever you do. And that is helpful. It's just not complete. So if we're to deal with this as broadly as Jesus did, and I I always think we should try to deal with things as broadly as Jesus does, we're going to have to look at the places where he addressed self-talk that was negative, though not necessarily negative thinking about the self. It just was broadly negative about topics and issues and other people in ways that deeply affect the story. But what is intriguing in these parables is that self-talk is often the turning point in the story. It's often what I call the hinge in the story, the place where the door turns, and that's the case today. So let's jump right into the story. This is the parable well known as the rich fool. I think the parable is, is improperly named. I would like to rename this parable, if you'll allow me, just for today. You don't have to cross it out in your Bible and change it. This is just for the sermon. The wise fool. You may go, wait a second. How can someone be wise and foolish at the same time? How is it possible that a person should be acting on wisdom and then suddenly be revealed as a fool? And the answer is one step too far. It is not stopping at the right place. It is moving from the right place to the wrong place, and it is misapplying wisdom, often even misapplying the Word of God. I know you don't do this, but I hear us do this fairly frequently. So here's the story that Jesus told of the rich fool or the wise fool. By the way, Jesus didn't name his story, you know, so it's just some Bible commentator that did that. I mean, it's not like Jesus said, I'm about to tell you guys the story of the rich fool. No, I mean, this is what it got named over time. So Jesus told those around him this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, which is equivalent to saying, He 
said to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Now, one of the amazing things about Jesus is the economy of his language. It's possible that Jesus wasn't quite as economical in his speaking as the gospel writers depict. Because maybe the gospel writers just deciphered. Maybe they, they, they molded things down to, to smaller pieces. But I think that Jesus was pretty good at getting a lot into a little. And when he tells a parable, there is so much information captured in so few words that I marvel. And Jesus sets up this whole parable with this first sentence. And here's a detail you're likely to miss. And if you miss this detail right at the beginning, you're going to miss a big part of the story. So let me ask you if you notice this, a little test. I know you're brain is in holiday mode. I understand that, but let's look at that first sentence. Jesus told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. Turn to somebody next to you and tell them, I noticed something about that. Just say that because your self-talk is powerful. And then say, what I notice is, and fill in the blank. What do you notice? Ah, I hear it. I heard it. What produced the abundant harvest? The ground produced the abundant harvest. Not the man. He's not the one who did it. Now, let's be clear. He played his part. And his part was significant. It was important. Perhaps he himself tilled The earth dropped the seed, watered and fertilized it, cared for it. More likely because he is, after all, a rich man. We're told at the very beginning that he is a rich man. So more likely, he stewarded the process well. He hired people to till the ground. He bought the seed. He hired people to plant the seed. He hired people to water it. He hired people to fertilize it. And he hired people to harvest it. And that's what we do as we ramp up our capacities. We learn to cooperate and work with others. That's pretty wise. So we can say this man is probably a pretty smart man. He knows how to handle this, but he's missing one important point, and that is that he cannot produce crops. Only God can do that. I can't tell you how important I think this point is to the story and to our understandings of the world. Neither can I tell you how significant I believe it is that we have lost our understanding of this core principle. We've lost it. My first church that I ever pastored was Turkey Branch Baptist Church in Enfield, North Carolina. My dad always used to make me mad by calling it Turkey Neck Baptist Church. But when I look back on it, there's really not that much difference. This little church was a church full of farmers. How many of you grew up in agrarian places or in churches that were full of farmers? You're going to know what I'm about to say. I'm going to tell you something. They worshiped very differently than you do. Every single weekend was about God's providence and about beseeching God's help, especially this time of year, because eastern North Carolina can get particularly dry, and they would be praying every weekend for one thing and one thing only, and that was rain, but then too much of it would come at the wrong time, and then they'd be praying for sun. They'd be praying for cooler temperatures or whatever conditions would yield a crop for them. They were utterly and completely aware of their dependence on God for the bounty that came to their families. There was no step between the field and their tables. That church paid me almost nothing, but they did feed me like crazy. And on Sunday afternoons, we would go 
to Wiley and Jean Acock's house. If you don't know North Carolina, there was a famous governor for a lot of reasons, infamous, really named Acock. And we'd go to their house. He was the chair of deacons. It was right beside the church. And we would have what Jean would call a buffet. Now the buffet included smoked barbecue always. That's a necessity in Eastern North Carolina with vinegar sauce, please. And then it would also include every possible vegetable that you can grow in eastern North Carolina, and that's a lot of kinds of vegetables. So, you know, you'd have baby lima beans. Does it sound good to you? Maybe it doesn't. I don't know where you're from, you know. You'd have corn. You'd have, you'd have, you'd have greens. You'd, I mean, it was just loaded. And you would eat and eat and eat and eat and eat back in Wiley's Pout House, back behind the house. This is where the buffet was. And, and they would start telling you everything you'd stop at. They'd say, Pastor, I picked those yesterday. Pastor, I picked that Tuesday. Pastor, that came out of the field today. Pastor, this is the first week okra has grown. Didn't that look good? Okra and tomatoes. You'd go down the line and you'd eat whatever you would eat. You know this, Rachel. You, you grew up like this. So you'd have this big meal. So what they didn't pay me, they made up for in feeding me the bounty of the land. But they were keenly aware of its origin. If it was barbecue, they were keenly aware of the hog that had given its life for that barbecue because they probably killed it and raised it. They were keenly aware of every step in the process, and we're not. One of the things I love to do on vacation, if I am at Sunset Beach, the house where uh, my family has had for many years, it's on the intercoastal waterway, and there are a lot of blue crabs in the intercoastal waterway. And so one of the first things I do is to go to Bill's Seafood Market and purchase fish heads and fish guts, because that's what crabs like. I used to use chicken, and then one day this, uh, this waterman was down there, and he said, what you doing? And I said, I'm crabbing. And he said, what you using? And I said, chicken. He said, that's interesting. I did not know know that chickens lived in the sea. (laughs) I turned and looked at him and he said, you know, crabs pretty much like what they usually eat. And I, I would suggest to you that you could save a lot of money and catch more crabs with fish than you can with chicken. And he was right. So go to Bill's Seafood, you buy the, the stuff that they, they fillet the fish, they sell you the rest for 50 cents a bag, you bait up your, uh, your uh, traps, as you might know them, pots as we call them, and you go down and you stick them in the water at low tide, and then you wait till the next low tide, and you go down and you bring them up again, and you, you see every time what your harvest is. Now, if you've never, if you've never, if you've never crabbed, you're not aware of the dramatic difference between one harvest and another for no good reason that I can figure. So maybe you pull up a dozen or more one day and the next evening or the next day you pull up two. And when you finish, because Debbie always walks down with me and she'll go down with our dog and we'll stand there and she'll say to me, how many did you catch? And I'll bring them home and I will cook them, steam them. And after I steam them, I will then cut them with a knife like good Virginians do. Only Marylanders beat them with hammers. And after I finish cleaning them, I have this abundance of crab, which then goes into a crab bisque or whatever it is you want to make or crab meltaways or whatever you want to make. And, and after I finish, Debbie will look at that and she'll always say, you ought to be proud of yourself. That's a good haul right there, if it's a good haul. And if it's not, she'll always say, well, it'll be more tomorrow. So there it is. It's a good haul. But let me be clear to you. I am pretty crabby sometimes, but I cannot make crabs. I can't produce them. I can't put them in the water. I can't determine whether they come close to my pots. I can't determine whether they're hungry or not. I can't determine the way the tides work, which has a lot to do with this. I can't determine whether the moon is full or partial. I can't determine any of these things. I am utterly and completely dependent on the providence of God for what comes in. And when I'm doing that, I know that. But a lot of my life is several steps removed from the production process of God's green earth. So when you go to the grocery store and you pull a piece of meat off the shelf, you do not envision the animal that gave its life for that. Unless you're a hunter, you don't have that opportunity. 
If you purchase a vegetable, you don't even know how many steps between the farm and you, and most of the time, you don't even know where the farm is. You have no clue, no understanding. And for many of you that do things like government or finance, finance, we look at people who are really successful in finance and we say, wow, look what they produce. Really? They're good at shuffling money from one pot to another efficiently, effectively, keenly. Yes, they do their part. But at the end of the day, all of it belongs to God. The abundance is his, the providence is his, and so we have to read scripture to find out what he intends with that abundance, and what God intends with abundance is that we and all around us should flourish. This is the reason for God's justice, for our call to be merciful to the poor, to be generous, is because when he blesses us, his intention is to bless others through us, and he is the one who produces everything. There is nothing new under the sun. Do we agree on that? The ground of a particular rich man yielded an abundant harvest. The ground produces. We are stewards of that production. Now the man thought to himself or said to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Any problem so far? The answer is no. This is a legitimate question. If you are a wise steward, then you are able to store whatever is yielded by the ground. Then he said, aha, this is what I'll do. I'll tell down my barns and build bigger ones. And there... I will store my surplus grain. Now, other than my, we really don't have a problem here. I know some commentators will tell you that you do, and I have read a number of commentators on this passage that say the problem here is this man is tearing down perfectly good barns to build new ones, and that is a silly, foolish statement if you asked me. Bigger harvests need bigger storehouses. That's common sense. No building lasts forever. A building is only a tool. Land is the more precious commodity. If he needed bigger barns, then he needed bigger barns. This is just intelligent. This is just wise. This is a part of good stewardship. So if we stop right here, there is no problem in the story. Of course, also, if you stop right here, there's no parable. So we don't stop right here. But if you do, this man is wise. You're wise when you manage responsibly. You are wise when you take into account the tools that are necessary to get the job done. You are wise when you ask questions of yourself like, I don't have enough to store or take care of or manage this. I need something more. A company is wise if it hires more people because more labor is necessary. A church is wise if it builds a building because it wants to see a bigger harvest of what God is bringing forward. No problem to this point. So here's what we have. A wise, rich man with a misconception that is going to make him unwise in just a moment. And the misconception is that he's the one yielding and therefore he is the one who deserves the entitlement of massive wealth. Now, here's where it gets interesting. And here's another point I never noticed. Jesus says that the man says to himself, now the man's already talking to himself, and then he says, and I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years, Take life easy. Eat, drink, be merry. What do you notice about this passage? It's one thing to say something to myself 
And it is quite another for me then to go one step further and say, not only am I talking to myself right now, but I will say to myself in the future this. The reason is because that involves what we call calculation. So what is happening is that this man has moved from thinking about how to handle a problem, solve a problem, into the sphere of determining what the future will look like. Not just planning for it, but seeking to determine it. And so what he is doing here is to calculate, and Jesus shows us that he's calculating. He's thinking carefully in order to justify what he's about to say. And what he wants to justify is this statement. You have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, my question for you is, where does he get? Where does he get this thing that he says to himself? Now, I I, I sometimes wonder if anybody remembers what I preached last Sunday, much less a long time ago. But do you remember the sermon series on Ecclesiastes called Winter Blues? Yes, Pastor. Thank you. Do you remember that this particular line was in the book of Ecclesiastes? It's still there, by the way. Yes, yes, Pastor, I remember that. So this man is a man of faith who knows the Bible well. He knows the entirety of the Old Testament, not just the Torah. He knows Solomon's writings in the book of Ecclesiastes, and he is quoting Solomon here. Eat drink, and be merry. Where does he find this? In Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 15a, which says, I come in, Solomon says, I come in the enjoyment of life because there's nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad or be merry. So, so this is good biblical content or biblical material. The problem is that the wise fool is taking it completely out of context. I mean completely. He couldn't skew the word of God anymore if he tried. And the most dangerous way we ever skew the word of God is by knowing it, but applying it only partially. Because the very next line, you'll remember, I know you do. I'm sure you do. The very next line in the same verse of scripture says, then joy will accompany them. In their toil... All the days of the life God has given them under the sun. In fact, the rest of the book of Ecclesiastes and the whole council of Scripture then advises mercy for the poor, living a just life. It advises that death is the final arbiter of everything. You can't take anything with you. You own nothing. You are only the steward of it. The rich fool or the wise fool, if you will, is completely forgetting the context of this scripture. Solomon was not saying, therefore amass everything you possibly can. Therefore, show God's abundance by your good fortune. He was saying, work hard all of your life, manage wisely, be a good steward, but enjoy your life as you go. Now, today is July 4th, and I'm not preaching a sermon on the patriots today because, uh, you know, we worship God. But it's a fitting day for us to think about the values of our nation. And I believe that we do some of the same kind of self-justification in our self-talk that the wise fool is doing here. So you tell me, have you ever said or heard someone say, when they received some huge good fortune, well, this is just God's love for me. This is just God's providence for me. Somebody told me not too long ago they had bought a vacation home that was worth as much as the home they owned. And in that vacation home, acquiring it, they said, well, they, they, they told me how God had made it all fall in place. It had all fallen in place. And I think there's a half-truth in this telling of the American dream. 
And here's the half truth. God is good. And he does provide for us. And he does provide abundantly. But what's missing is the thought that there is enough that is enough at some point and that there are other, others around us who are in extreme need and that we need to be very careful not to justify our good fortune and our good wealth. How do we do that in our country? Well, whenever we say something that sounds like this, well, you know, amassing a tremendous fortune proves to everybody that anyone can do it. There are so many misnomers there, I don't even know how to talk about them because, first of all, everybody can't do it. Everybody doesn't have the right situation to do it. Everybody doesn't have the opportunity to do it. It is not possible for everyone to do it, but we'd like to believe that it is. Secondly, we come to believe that the reason that we are so successful is that we are so capable. Well, I can show you lots of capable people who have either chosen to apply their capabilities in a place that will not make them super wealthy or they just haven't had the right opportunities, whatever the case may be, that's a misnomer too. Maybe we even use scripture and we say, well, we are proving how good God is, how abundant he is. Let me just ask you, if you are able to amass a tremendous fortune and I am to go to a person you pass on the street who is homeless and I ask them, you see that wealthy person that just walked by and all their finery Does that make you feel good about God's providence? Can you tell me what you think their answer will be? No. No. It is okay to earn wealth. Let me be clear. But you do not produce that wealth. The ground does. God does. And the first question we should ask is, Lord, what do you intend to do with this wealth through me? How do you intend to cause your earth and the people around me to flourish and prosper? How will you bless others through me? And this is the question the wealthy man, the rich fool, the wise fool never asks. He's wise to steward well. He is a fool because he does not recognize how God uses resources in the world God has created. In fact, if we look at Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, I'm pretty sure that we'll find words from Jesus that we don't often use to justify our actions. I'm pretty sure. You know this scripture. You may even hearken to this scripture, but you don't use it to justify what you do. Jesus taught, don't store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moths or vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now the problem with the rich fool or the wise fool is his self-talking, self-justification. I'm going to come back to that in a second and I'll close with it. His self-talking, calculating, self-justification. The story concludes, but God said to him, remember I told you that Solomon said death would be the final arbiter? God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get you what you have prepared for yourself? You remember I said that we're never just talking to ourselves? That observation? The wise fool or the rich fool was talking to himself, calculating to himself, but God was listening. And God was the final judge. And one of the instruments of God's judgment is death. And God says to him this very night, these big barns you built, whatever you've stored will be left to someone else. Jesus concludes the story. It's an obvious teaching, so I don't know why Jesus needed to tell us, but, you know, sometimes we don't see it. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. Now, why do we justify? Are you as good at justification as I am? 
I'm really good at it. So before you say yes, I'm really, really good at this. I mean, you do something and then you can't exactly even yourself figure out why you did it. And so you start explaining to yourself why you did it, which makes you more credible to others when you explain to them, unless it's somebody who knows you really well, like your wife. And then, you know, you rehearse it and it sounds good. And then you tell her and she goes, <laughs> you don't really think that, do you? You ever had that happen? It happens to me all the time. The reason we do this is because of cognitive dissonance. Now, cognitive dissonance is something we discussed in the In Not Of series a great deal, but let's talk about how it applies here. It's the state of having inconsistent thoughts, beliefs, or attitudes, which, of course, none of you do, but I do. Okay, I got this problem. Or it is that we say one thing and we do another. Okay, so it's like saying, I am a very generous person. We all think we're very generous people, but then you don't give anything away. No. Doesn't work that way. Okay, I'm a very loving person, but then you flip everybody off on the road. No, doesn't work that way. Self-justification is what we do in order to justify our actions and attitudes or our thoughts. Here's one of my favorite ones. This is one of my all-time favorites. There is not one trip I take like I did this last week where I do not say at some point in time, People in North Carolina or Virginia or fill in the state just do not know how to use the left lane. I will turn to my wife and say to her, I can't help it. I can't stop myself. I'll turn to her and say, you know, it's the slow drivers that are the real danger out here. (laughs) Do I really believe that? No, but it justifies the fact that I am not a slow driver. So think about your actions and your behaviors and how you justify them. What social scientists and psychologists tell us is that there are two types of self-justification, internal and external. This isn't tough, but the internal one is the what we tell ourselves about who we are, what we do, why our beliefs don't balance out against each other. That's what we tell ourselves. And then there's the external, which is what we tell everybody else. But I think it's common sense, isn't it, that the internal will always precede the external? So we have to make sense to ourselves before we're credible to anyone else, right? And so listen to what this man is doing. He is justifying himself to himself so that he can justify himself to others. The very first sin of human beings involves self-justification, Genesis 3. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Remember, they'd eaten from the tree of the knowledge of right and wrong, essentially. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden, hiding from God. Such a silly thing to do, but that's what they did. And then the Lord God called to the man and he says, where are you, Adam? And Adam answers, well, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. Self-justification. I am hiding from God because I am naked. I'm not going to follow Jesus because I'm not good enough. I am not going to do this because I'm not ready yet. There'll be a time in the future whatever the case may be. And God says, who told you you were naked? The word hadn't even been invented yet, I guess. Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The answer was yes. Solomon says in Proverbs 16, two through three, and then 29, one, all a person's ways seem pure to them, but motives are weighed by the Lord. Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and he will establish your plans. In in chapter 29, whoever remains stiff-necked, that can't be turned, whoever remains stiff-necked after many rebukes will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. Where does self-justification come from? It comes from out of my stiff neck. That's where it comes from. In Luke chapter 16, verses 14 through 15, a story that falls right after that parable, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. And he said to them, you're the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Now, the big problem with self-justification is if you decide that your behaviors are always right and true, your attitudes are always right and true, what you do is always right and true, you have just short-circuited God's justification of you through Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection. God cannot justify people 
who I've already justified themselves. He essentially says, well, I see you've got that taken care of. You go on your merry way. But when you stand before his judgment, he will ask you, how did that work out for you? So you either are right in your own eyes or you could be righteous in God's. Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, book of Romans, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Do not conform then to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good his pleasing, his perfect will, because only his will is good and pleasing and perfect. If you want to be justified by God for eternity, if you want to be made right with God, then one of the most important things that you can do and I can do is to stop self-talking justification, to pause and to pray about God's will for the way you would conduct yourself, the attitudes you would have, who you would become. Again, this conversation is happening all the time. Can you transform your mind by renewing it? Can you monitor and modify your self-talk in such a way that you are educating the subconscious you that is making most of your decisions so that your actions and attitudes become more aligned with Christ. Paul says we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. We actually can edit our self-talk. And some of that does involve what you tell yourself about yourself. But some of it involves what you tell yourself about God and his providence and about life and about the world around you and about the people who are close to you to whom Jesus spoke to you about when he said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Father, I pray that you would give us the wisdom to speak truth to ourselves in such a way that we, our minds, our bodies, everything about us, become more like Jesus every day. And I pray this in his name. Amen. Thanks for being with us, friends. Have a blessed Independence Day. And you go saying to yourself, I ignite passion for Jesus Christ from Metro Washington to the world. See you soon. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Metro D.C. or Northern Virginia area, We would love to worship with you at one of our weekend gatherings. For directions, service times, and information about all the incredible things happening at Columbia, go to columbiabaptist.org. That's columbiabaptist.org.